Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the com- comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of the bull, the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Verse 10. By the which will we are sancti- we are sanctified through the offerings through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same op- the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after that he had offered one sacrifice for the sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstools, his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You may be seated. Several weeks ago, I gave a sermon here from the book of Leviticus. I gave an introduction, a brief overview of the book, and then we looked at three stories or historical events that were recorded in the book. Not a lot of history recorded, but there are three events. We took a look at those. And at the end of the sermon, I indicated that there is a possibility that we might be hearing more from the book of Leviticus. And that's what I would like to do this morning. Paul told Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And in the New Testament, when they used the word scripture, it typically referred to the Old Testament. So we could say all of the Old Testament is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that he may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I ask this morning, do you believe that verse? Do you believe that all of the Bible is profitable for us? Is it worth studying? Someone has said that the book of Exodus typifies the law, and the book of Leviticus typifies The gospel represents the gospel, pointing us to Jesus Christ. Now, we don't often think of Leviticus as being um, a gospel, but I think it's true. The book of Leviticus is there to point us forward to something better. And we could say that it is a glimpse through the binoculars. And there's a story that, that illustrates that point that I'd like to share with you this morning. But to help you understand the story, first I want to give a little bit of background. In our society today, we have numerous minority groups, we may call them, or special intergroups, that promote their interests and their heritage. And there may be nothing wrong with doing that promoting your your heritage, where you come from, who you are. 
but often in an effort to promote their own identity or to preserve their energy or their identity, these groups often resist or react against anything they consider to be an outside influence or the identity of the majority group. Sometimes we see this taking place when a certain nationality or race or culture in an effort to preserve their identity they reject influences from other cultures and other races. And one example of this is found in the, the native population here in, in North America. Sometimes these people refer to Christianity as the white man's religion. They refer to the Bible as the white man's book because to them this is something that another culture brought in. And in an effort to establish or preserve their own identity, some of them resist Christianity and the Bible in favor of traditional religious practices, things that their culture has practiced for years. Now, for this story, some of you remember a number of years ago when Merle Burkholder was here for a series of um, meetings at a missions conference. Merle spent a lot of his life in northwestern Ontario, ministering to the native people there. And the book, Led by His Hand, is a story or a, a collection of stories from his experiences. And in this book, he tells an interesting story. Merle and his wife were beginning a, a Bible study, a series of Bible study with a group of native people. And they were discussing what will we study? And they were looking at the Bible, looking at some uh, books of the Bible, and Merle suggested to the group that they study the um, Gospel of John. That would be a good one. Well, there's one man there by the name of Joe who said, well, I want to see what else is in here. And he looked, and he said, Leviticus, what's that? And Merle said, well, we don't want to study Leviticus. Well, why not? Joe asked. Well, it's about Old Testament sacrifices. It's about dietary laws and rules for living. Well, that sounds interesting, Joe said. That's not interesting, Merle said. And they went on to discussing other options. Merle tried to steer them to something to the New Testament. But Joe kept coming back to this. I think Leviticus sounds interesting. And pretty soon other members of the group started siding with him. So they agreed that they would study the book of Leviticus. On their way home from the meeting, Merle said to his wife, this is going to be a disaster. Leviticus is not a book for new Christians. They'll lose interest, and this whole thing's going to fall apart. So the next week they got together, and they started out with the first book of Leviticus, about the sacrifices. It was uh, the procedure for a burnt offering. And Joe was fascinated. He said, that sounds just like the white dog sacrifice that our people have practiced. It's different, but different animal, but it's very similar. Well, the next week they studied the green offering. Well, that reminds me of burning sweet grass, Diane said, another member. Something we used to do. And instead of losing interest, this class was increasingly intrigued as he went through the book of Leviticus, finding comparison after comparison with their native practices. 
When they got to the rules for personal hygiene, one of them said, well, that's just exactly what my grandmother used to teach me. They got to the rules for respect for elders. They said, well, that sounds like what our elders have taught us. And then they got to chapter 25, where it says, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, and ye are strangers and sojourners with me. Now Joe got really excited. He said, there it is. It's in the Bible. We were right. We always knew the land belonged to God, and it couldn't be owned by people. We've been trying to tell you white people that for centuries. We said we would share the land because we knew it couldn't be bought or sold. But your people thought they had bought the land and it belonged to them. Well, the discussion went on. And finally, Joe asked, so why are there so many things in the book of Leviticus that compare with our culture? So Merle went back to the book of Genesis, explained the creation. He explained the flood, how that... Everyone on the earth descended from, from Noah and from his descendants. He explained the Tower of Babel and how that at that point, the different language groups were spread out all over the world, but they all come from one source. And he said, wherever people went, they took with them the knowledge of the Creator and the sacrificial system. He said, the Ojibwe people in Canada have ancestors who were at the Tower of Babel. Your traditions and beliefs go all the way back to Noah and his sons. Well, where did the book of Leviticus come from? Joe asked. And Merle said, well, God gave the Israelites more rules and instructions for sacrifices. They were to be used until Jesus came and died on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. He died not only for the Israelite people, but for the whole world. Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system of the Jewish people and also for the Ojibwe people. The room got very silent until finally one person said, so the Bible is not just a white man's book. The Bible is an Ojibwe book as well. Absolutely, Merle said, the Bible is God's word to all people, African, European, Ojibwe, or whoever. Far from being a disaster, the book of Leviticus became the connection point between the Ojibwe people and the Jesus of the New Testament. It was a look forward into something more. Do you see the gospel message in the book of Leviticus? Do you see it pointing forward to Christ? I'd like you to open your Bibles again to Leviticus this morning. And we're going to take another look this morning at what we can see as we glimpse through the binoculars, looking forward to something more and something better. This morning, I, I want to focus on the first several chapters of Leviticus, one through about chapter five or six where it focuses on the offerings. And for a little bit, I considered having one sermon on each offering, but I didn't want to scare you with the prospect of staying in Leviticus for the rest of the year. 
So I'm going to try to summarize them in one sermon. It might be a little bit of a challenge, but that's what we want to do this morning. We'd like to look, first of all, at the principles of sacrifice, and then we're going to look at the pictures of sacrifice, and finally, at the perfect sacrifice. First of all, three principles of sacrifice. Number one, God responds to those who obey him. And I want you to focus a little bit on the first verse of Leviticus. The first verse, if you read over it, you probably skim over it and just go right on to the next verse. But I think the first verse is very significant. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Do you catch the significance? Do you see any significance? The significance comes as you understand the book of Exodus leading up to this. Prior to this moment, God had spoken to the children of Israel from Mount Sinai, from a distant point, way up there in the mountain. He had spoken to Moses. He gave him instructions for building the tabernacle, and in the very last chapter of Exodus, the tabernacle was set up. And in the last verses of Exodus, the presence and glory of God filled the tabernacle. That was a tremendous, momentous occasion. The presence of God, which before was up there on the top of the mountain, was now dwelling among his people. He was there. It was real. His glory filled the tabernacle. And now, for the first time, God spoke not just from the mountain, but from the tabernacle itself, from right within their camp. The presence of God was among them. You see, drawing near to God is not just an event. It's a journey. It's a process. It's a lifelong process. You see, first God met Moses on the mountain. When, God respond, or when Moses responded to that and obeyed him, and built a tabernacle, then God moved closer. Drawing near to God requires a response from our part, and then God responds to that. Following God is a little bit like doing a treasure hunt. You know, a treasure hunt where you give a clue to someone, and they follow that clue and go somewhere else, and then they find another clue, and they follow that. God gives us instructions. We follow that. And then he gives us further instructions. He speaks. We obey. He speaks again. We obey. And through this process, we continue to come closer and closer. We just simply do the next right thing. As God speaks to us, we do the next right thing. And we don't know where that journey will lead us 10 years from now. We don't know where it will lead us five years from now or even one year from now, but we continue to follow because God responds to those who obey him. I am so often intrigued by how the Old Testament and the New Testament just mesh together so beautifully and so wonderfully. James 4.8 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands. We see a lot in Leviticus about cleansing. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I think these words from James are a one-verse summary of the book of Leviticus. 
This book's about drawing near to God. It's about cleansing. It's about purifying ourselves. It's so beautiful. It says, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. There are so many things around us clamoring for our attention. Are we double-minded? Maybe we're triple-minded or quadruple-minded. Our mind is just drawn in all directions. But as we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. God responds to those who obey him, who follow him. That's just the first verse. Another thing I see, a second principle of sacrifice, is that God delights in your offerings or specifically in, in your obedience to him. Our obedience to God in these offerings is described as a sweet-smelling savor to God. And that phrase, a sweet-smelling savor, is not used just once or twice or even three times, but it's used 11 times in the first six chapters of Leviticus, a sweet-smelling savor. Now, I'd like you to think about what are some smells that you enjoy? You think about a smell that really grabs your attention. I'm guessing some of you might be thinking about a steak on the grill. There may be other things you think about. I think about alfalfa hay drying in the field. When I drive down the road and I see a field of alfalfa, I just feel compelled to open my window and get a big, deep breath of it. It's just a smell that I enjoy. I also think of when the locust blossoms are blooming behind our house. It just fills the air and you just step outside and you you just can't get enough of it. You just want more and more of it. You just want to fill yourself with it. And that's how our obedience is to God. He can't get enough of it. it. He just wants to fill himself with it. He loves it. And you might ask, well, what does he get out of all these animals and all this blood that he loves so much? Well, I don't think it's the animals and the blood. It's not the item, but it's the act. It's the act of obedience. It's when his people follow his voice and obey him. That is a sweet-smelling savor that he can't get enough of. If you notice here, you see a theme following through these three principles, and that theme is obedience. You know, as we obey, God responds, and God delights in our offerings our in or in our obedience. God loves our obedience so much, he just wants to more and more and more of it. And that's just as true in 2023 as it was in 1400 B.C., The third principle we see is that God expects more from some people than he does from others. He doesn't always expect the same thing from everyone. In some cases, an offering or a sacrifice could be from the herd, which represents cattle, or it could be from the flocks, which represent sheep or goats, or we could say it could be from the roost, a pigeon or a turtle dove. Or possibly it could even be from the pantry, an ephah of fine flour or a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. It wasn't always the same for every person. 
God expected more of some than he did of others. And the application to that is that it's not always good for us to compare ourselves among ourselves. God may be asking something from you that he's not asking from someone else. And that's his prerogative. He may do that. Don't fuss about it. Just do what he asks and obey. God expects more from some than from others. You've heard me read the reading here before entitled, Others May, You Cannot. It's about sometimes God asks you not to do something that other people are doing or to do something that others are not doing. And even in the New Testament, there was inequality. There were slaves, there were masters, there were rich, there were poor, there were persecuted. There were those who were not persecuted. God asked some things of some people that he did not ask from others. And life simply is not always fair. Now, most of you who are parents and most of you who are school teachers probably heard that statement sometimes. That's not fair. It's just not fair. Well, we do what we can to try to keep things fair, but the sooner our children and all of us recognize that life will not be fair, the better off they are. Accepting that fact is a key to finding joy and fulfillment in life. We know that life is not fair. Your friend may drive a new car while you're driving an old car. Your friend may get all A's on his report card while you struggle to even get a C. Someone else might keep, might eat all they want to eat and keep a slim appearance while every French fry you eat seems to add another pound. Life isn't fair, but that's okay. God expects more of some than he does of others. And God has his hand on your shoulder and he's pointing you in the direction he wants you to go. He's not pointing you in the direction he wants everyone else to go. He has chosen a path for you. And you can't see where that path leads sometimes. It may disappear around the corner. But we need to follow one step at a time. God may expect more from you than he expects from anyone else. We need to, in faith, obey what he's asking us to do. Let's move forward now. We looked at three principles of sacrifice. Let's look at five pictures of sacrifice. And what I'd like to do is look at these individual sacrifices, look at a few characteristics of them, but then look at what they typify for our lives. The picture as you look forward. The first is the burnt offering, which is in chapter 1. As you skim over chapter 1, it's all about the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was for the purpose of atonement. I had to ask myself, what is atonement? We hear that word so often, but what is it? And most translations I looked at used that exact word, to make atonement. The New Living Translation, which is a rather loose translation, I don't rely on that very much, but it says, the Lord will accept its death in your place, making you right with him. So that's the atonement aspect, making you right with God. Sometimes we hear the, the definition that atonement means at one meant. You become one with God. 
It has to do with reconciliation. Strong's gives a number of words for this, for the Greek word that's used here. It can mean to cover with pitch. Not just to cover over with a sheet or something, but to cover with pitch, to completely cover. To appease, to cleanse, to reconcile, or to legally resolve. That's what we mean when referring to atonement. So atonement means to renew the relationship between God and man that was broken by sin. Another observation. This appears to be a voluntary offering. Verse 2, God says, If any man of you bring an offering to the Lord, verse 3, if his offering be a burnt sacrifice, notice this is not a commandment. This is a voluntary offering. If you bring a burnt offering, then this is how it's supposed to be. There were conditions, but the choice to bring it was voluntary. It needed to be perfect. There was to be nothing second-rate about it. It was to be washed before, in, before being placed in the altar, indicating the cleansing, and it was to be burnt in its entirety. Every part of that animal, it was scun, and then every part of that animal was burned on the offering. Some offerings, only designated portions were given to God, but not so with this one. It was the entire animal. What about some applications to the burnt offering? As we take a look through the binoculars, as we look ahead, what is the picture that this offering is painting, it's presenting? Well, the burnt offering, remember, was for atonement. This offering represents salvation. It is giving ourselves to God, being reconciled to him. Our sins are resolved. There's resolution to the sin problem. Salvation is primary in our relationship with God. I think it's by design that this is the first offering that's listed in the book of Leviticus. It is foundational. It is basic. In chapter 6, it in, there's an indication that every morning, the first thing that the priest did was to offer a burnt offering every day, which was foundational for all the other offerings that were offered throughout that day. So salvation is primary. This is the first step in our relationship to God. All the other offerings are pointless if we don't receive Christ's atonement for our sins. You cannot expect to experience fellowship and peace and growth with God, some of the things that are coming, if we first do not surrender to him. The burnt offering, giving ourselves to God, is primary. It's foundational. Secondly, it's voluntary. God made provisions. Now it's up to us to accept it or to reject it. God says, if, if you want to give yourself to me, here are the provisions I put in place. Jesus said in the New Testament, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and will open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Notice that if. It's your choice. Salvation is cleansing. The sacrifice was washed before it was put on the altar. We need to be cleansed before we are accepted or acceptable. Unto God, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, which I already mentioned. And finally, salvation 
is total. Remember I said the burnt offering, the entire animal was burnt upon the altar. Everything was placed on the altar. Salvation, I believe, is conditional upon our entire surrender to God. We sang the song a while ago, I'm glad I'm yours, Lord. I'm glad I'm yours. If you have not laid your life on the altar in full surrender to God, you can't sing that song in honesty because you don't belong to God. Do you really belong to God? If we hold anything back in our lives, our sacrifice is not complete. I was also looking at the song this morning before church started. I was sitting here, fully surrendered, Lord divine. I would be true to thee. All that I have, all that I am or have is thine. I would be true to thee. That's just placing your life on the altar, giving yourself to God. And if you do not choose to make that offering, the rest of the offerings you may as well ignore. That's foundational. It's primary. It comes first. It's giving your very life to God. Your plans, your dreams, your ambitions, your fears, your goals. Surrendered to God. Well, let's move into chapter 2, which refers to the grain offering. The King James Version refers to this as a meat offering. Now, in the King James Word, or in the King James Version, the word meat was frequently used to refer to food of various types and various sorts. And the use in this passage is not referring to meat, to the flesh of animals, as we think of it. And it's clear in this passage. It goes on to say in, in verse 1 and verse 2, it is to be of fine flour. It could pre be presented as a flour, as flour, or as a cake that was baked and fried. Most translations refer to this as a grain offering, and it's clear that that's what it's referring to. So that's what I am uh, referring to it here as well, the grain offering. This offering is somewhat unique in that there was no animal or blood involved. It was a grain offering, but they did not offer the grain as grains. It needed to be finely ground. It was either flour or it was in a cake. The grains lost their identity. And it was to be offered with oil and incense. What are some applications we can make to this offering? As we look ahead through the binoculars, what is the picture of our salvation that God is painting here? Now, we mentioned that the burnt offering represented our lives, giving our lives in their entirety to God. Grain was the fruit of their labor. As they worked in the fields, grain was the fruit of their everyday efforts. So I would say that the grain offering represents our labor, the consecration of our daily work and activity and efforts to the glory of God. First, we give our lives to God, and then secondly, we concentrate our daily activities and all that we do to God. This is a reminder that when we give ourselves to God, it includes all of our lives. You see, commitment to God is not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a 10-minute-in-the-morning 10 10 devotional type of thing. It is a 
24 7 365 day thing when we go to work we're working for the lord so are you building gazebos for god are you spraying yards as if it was god's yard are you building furniture for god are you selling real estate as though you're selling it to God? Are you preparing meals or teaching for the glory of God? Every aspect of our daily lives needs to be for the glory of God. Now, I mentioned that this is to be offered with oil and frankincense. You know, it might be pretty easy for us to say, sure, I'll, I'll serve God with what I do. I'll I'll donate a mini barn to the Haiti sale. I'll give a quilt to the school sale. There, I've done my job. Good for me. But there's more than that. It's to be offered with oil and frankincense. He wants, God wants more than just your things. He wants more than what you feel obligated to do your duty. He wants it to be given in the right attitude and the right spirit. And oil, I believe, is representative of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. And our giving needs to be done in the spirit. Give what and how he asked us to give. Give where, give when. Give in response to the spirit. You see, without the presence of God's spirit in our life, our giving means nothing to God. Incense is representative of our prayers. And our giving needs to be done prayerfully, not mechanically. It should be done worshipfully, gratefully, and cheerfully with the desire to bring God, uh, glory to God. Something else that was unique about the grain offering is that it was not given in its entirety to God. It was given to God and to the priests. The fruit of our labor should glorify God and it should serve man as well. We have the idea that our work is something we do for ourselves. And that's true. We have a responsibility to provide for our own. But our work should also be with the desire to serve God and to glorify Him and to meet the needs of others. Acts 20, verse 35, So laboring, you ought to support the weak, give to others through our labors, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Notice that there is no salvation in this offering. You cannot work your way into heaven. Salvation comes through the burnt offering, through the atonement, through giving ourselves to God. And then this follows. It's an expression of committing our labors to God. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You can work all you want to. It's not going to bring you salvation. It is simply an expression of that salvation to God. Moving on to chapter 3, to the peace offering, which is found in chapter 3. Now, this, uh, this offering also is sometimes referred to as the fellowship offering. Peace offering, fellowship offering refers to the same thing. has to do with, with a relationship and with a friendship the first two offerings represented our commitment to God. 
the burnt offering, the grain offering, committing ourselves to God. This sacrifice, this offering represents communion with God. And again, this sacrifice involved an animal. It appeared to be voluntary. If you bring this offering, this is how you're supposed to do it. And an interesting thing about this offering is that only a small portion of it was given to God. A large portion of it was actually to be eaten. And it was to be eaten immediately, eaten that day, or possibly the next day, but not beyond that. So it was often a social uh, event as people gathered together. What are the applications we see? What is the picture that is painted here? I think this offering represents a natural sequence. First, we commit ourselves to God, and then we receive the communion with God. We cannot short-circuit God's plan. You know, some people might say, well, I, I just want to be at peace with God. I just want to have fellowship with God. Commit myself to him? No, I don't want to do that. I just want to have the relationship. We cannot short-circuit God's plan. We will not find peace without the primary requirements of atonement and giving ourselves to God. This sacrifice represents communion with God. Matthew 7, or 27, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And in Christ, fellowship and communion directly with God became possible in a way that it never had been before. And we tend to take that for granted. We don't consider what a privilege it is to commune with God and fellowship with him. The sacrifice also represents communion with God's people. John 1.7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another as we all come to God. So the, the, the peace offering or the fellowship offering here in chapter 3, it represents communion with God and fellowship with him. But as this offering was offered and then as they ate it together, this became a special time, a special activity as these people united together. And I think it's important for us to do the same thing. You know, there, there's something special about sharing a meal together that draws us together. You know, we can visit, we can fellowship after a church service, but getting together for a meal just goes above and beyond. I think that was especially true of, of Eastern cultures during that time. Uh, some of you have fellowshiped in Eastern cultures where you may sit together around a common bowl, and everyone dips into this common bowl. You're, you're, you're kind of becoming one with each other. I remember in Romania, often if uh, we had a meal after church, maybe it was a wedding meal or another special occasion where there was a meal together, their means were limited. They had this big table spread out. They didn't have enough glasses for everyone. So for every 10 people, they may have had two or three drinking glasses. Whenever you were thirsty, you just got a drink. Now, for some of the more persnickety Americans, they made sure they got their drink first and didn't drink for the rest of the meal. But there was this common sharing together 
that was involved in sharing a meal. We see that in fellowship meals. Sometimes we have more meal than we have fellowship. We eat and we run. But what about the fellowship? Now I know for some of you, you might feel alone. You might feel lonely at a fellowship meal. And I've been there. There were times when I did not look forward to such occasions. But I encourage you, participate in them. There is just something about spending this time together. Well, let's move on to the fourth and the fifth picture, which I'm going to combine here, the sin offering and the trespass offering. These are two separate offerings, but they're closely related. There's a lot of similarities between them, and uh, I knew I'd be running uh, tight on time here, so we're just going to look at them together. Now, these offerings do not appear to be optional or voluntary. As you read the passage, God gives directions. When you sin, this is what you need to do. These are not optional. They are commanded. The sin offering was for a violation of the law as it pertained to our relationship with God, while the trespass offering pertained more to an offense towards another person or towards property that may have been destroyed. It's a case where restitution could be made. Now, I find it interesting. The first offerings were optional. Becoming a Christian is your choice. You decide if you're going to be a Christian or not. You're not required to give your life to God. But if you decide that you are going to commit yourself to God, then there are some things that are required. And even as Christians, we fail. Let's look at some of the applications here. The burnt offering and the grain offering I indicated represented our commitment to God. The peace offering represented our communion with God. And now these offerings represent cleansing from God. When we fail, when we sin, we seek that cleansing. You have committed your life to God. You've laid your life on the altar. You belong to him. And you experience that communion with him. But the fact is, we still fail. Sometimes we fail in our relationship with God. Sometimes we fail in our relationship with people. And when that happens, God has an expectation. He has a, a requirement. This is not voluntary. We need to come to God and seek his cleansing for our sin. Let's move on to our final point. One perfect sacrifice. Now, as we gave a quick overview of these sacrifices, and as we looked at the applications that they were picturing, I emphasized what we need to do. We need to lay our lives on the altar, committing ourselves to God. We need to commit our daily activities to God. We need to experience fellowship with God and with his people. We need to make restitution and seek cleansing when we fail. And perhaps you noticed that I did not spend much time emphasizing the work of Christ as we looked at these sacrifices. Did, did you think about that? Did you miss it? I'm kind of hoping you did. 
Because I wasn't avoiding it. I was saving the best to last. Because Christ is the perfect picture. Everything that was expected, everything that was required, he is. He is the one perfect sacrifice. As a burnt offering, Jesus is our atonement. 1 Peter 1.19 Ye were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was a perfect one who provides our atonement, brings our salvation. As a grain offering, he was crushed and offered for us. And he completed his work to the glory of God. I've glorified thee on the earth, Jesus said. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Christ is our peace offering. He is the one who makes it possible for us to have fellowship with God. He is the one who made it possible for that veil to be rent in twain from the top to the bottom. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just him for the unjust, us, that he might bring us to God, that we can have that fellowship with God. He is our peace offering. He is the one who bear our sins and trespasses. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Also Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Christ is the one. He is the perfect Lamb of God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. The perfect Lamb of God. That we might be made righteousness. The righteousness of God in him. He is the one sacrifice for sins forever. And the passage that John read this morning from Hebrews chapter 10 points out how that the Old Testament sacrifices were only a picture. They were only pointing ahead to something else. They could not resolve the problem, but they were pointing to the resolution. And it says, but this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. I hope that we don't pass off the book of Leviticus too lightly. There's a lot there. It's the gospel message. It points us to Jesus. And I think as we understand the content of this book, it helps us to appreciate more fully what Jesus did for us. And may our response be that of Paul in writing to Timothy, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I invite you to kneel with us for prayer.